On this episode of the Fifth Estate Podcast, everyone's on the edge of their seats waiting for the election draw. Uh, hopefully, it'll be announced by the AEC by the time uh, before this uh, recording finishes. Um, I'm going to have a bit of a review of Morgan Jonas's uh, positions or policies that he's um, putting out there to try and win a Senate seat. Uh, talk about the new class of the World Economic Forum's young global leaders, along with comments on tweets by Jane Caro and Sally McManus. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Evening, Victoria. Um, yes, as I said at the start, I've been waiting for the uh, the announcement of the ballot positions uh, to be published by the Australian Electoral Commission. Uh, and just refreshing the Twitter feed, it's not up. They have said it'll come out sometime this evening, though at the time of recording, it doesn't appear to be so. Uh Oh, actually, who are my candidates? Ooh, hang on. Let's have a look. Qualification checklist, blah, 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 blah. Okay, it has been announced. All right. So, oh, my God. Oh, yuck. Let's just say it's a... Oh, okay, um, it's going to be a shit ballot paper for Scarlet. Uh, that's my area. Um, and, and the Watermelons have got number one. Pauline Hanson's got number two. Uh, Liberal Democrats have got number three. Um, Andrew Giles has got number four. Uh, UAP has got number five. Liberal Party of Australia has got number six. And Victorian Socialists have got number seven. So, uh, how would I vote? Um, mate, definitely not going to do a donkey vote on that one because you don't want the watermelons to get in. Um, oh, there you go. Um, Pauline Hanson's One Nation, Ursula Van Bree. Uh, she's a truck driver. So... What happens if I click on that? Nothing. Um, that's interesting. So, um, so seven would obviously be the greens. Six would probably go for Victorian socialists. Five would be Labor Party. Four would be Liberal Party. Three would be the LDP. Two would be United Australia. And maybe um, number one to Pauline Hanson's One Nation. Oh, my God, that means I'm a right-wing supporter. So what was it? Right-wing extremist supporter. What was I? I think that's what I was called on Facebook the other day. Um, supporter of right-wing extremists. Uh, so, yes. Um, so, yeah, but... Eh. Um, as for the Senate ticket, how many have we got? 
goes all the way up to Z and ungrouped. Holy smoke. Um, So on the Senate ticket, Reason got A. Oh, B was Damien Richardson and John McBride. So there you go. Um, So that's a a good one, B. For, For those two... Uh, Democrats got C, Liberal Nationals got D. Oh, Bridget McKenzie second. Sarah Henderson's first on the ticket. Uh, Legalised Cannabis got E. Uh, F is a Sustainable Australia Party. G is Australian Values. H is Hinches. Uh, I is the Animal Justice Party. Uh, J's Australian Progressives, K's the Labor Party, uh, L is the UAP, M is Socialist Alliance, N is Australian Federation Party, geez, I've got a few candidates there, uh, O is the Shooters, Fishers, Farmers Party, Pauline Hanson's got P, Pauline, one hand, Pauline Hanson's One Nation got P, Q is the Citizens Party, R is Morgan Jonas and Monica Smith, S is the fusion, which is the science pirate secular climate emergency. Uh, T is an ungrouped. U is the watermelons. Uh, (coughs) Sorry, the Australian Greens, with number one being Lydia Thorpe on the ticket. Uh, V is the Great Australian Party. W is Liberal Democrats. X is the Informed Medical Opinions Party. Y is another ungrouped which is Peter Byrne and Jason Waddle. Z is a Victorian socialist. And then there is a whole lot of ungrouped. Um, that is going to be interesting. Um, so I might reach out to all of them uh, in this area. I know, um, I don't think, I can imagine... Most of them won't respond, but hey, I'm going to reach out to the ones in Scullin and see if they're willing to have a chat. Um, I might even reach out to, yeah, I'll reach out to Reason uh, and some of the other ones and see if they're willing to have a chat too. Don't think Liberal Democrats will be up to playing the game. I know the AJP won't. Uh, they've ignored my email so far. Uh, so yes, but anyway, um it is interesting. Uh, sadly, there's no independents running for Scullin, uh, so they're all from a party, uh, which is very disappointing. Uh, because, as you've heard, you know, I've I've said before, the ideal thing is to vote for independents, because that takes the uh, money out of the hands of the political parties, and the more that they see their primary vote drop, the more likely they are to wake up and think, oh. We're doing something wrong here uh, because it costs some money. So uh, that's that. So anyway, um, watch your space later on. I will see if I can get um, a chance to have a chat to a couple of them uh, and and see what they do. Uh, I've got some homework ahead of myself before May 20. Um, So yes. But anyway, uh, moving on to the next thing. So something that I can do now is... is have a look at the policy or positions of Morgan Jonas. Uh, 
which is there we no that's not it there we go Morgan Jonas for the Senate there you go so he's got position so if you head over to his website number oh like he's got an arm's length uh, list of things and he's still got far too many that are coming soon uh, so obviously COVID nineteen. Uh, it starts with, to be clear, the disaster for our community did not originate with a virus but the undue fear-mongering and government overreach. Uh, as a matter of urgency, the following measures must occur. Lifting of mandates, no further lockdowns, restore informed consent for medical procedures. Um, lifting of mandates, the Commonwealth can't do anything about. No further lockdowns, Commonwealth can't do anything about. Uh, restore informed consent for medical procedures. Well, that's something through APRA. Maybe you could do that. Uh, adequate and accessible compensation for those suffering vaccine injury. Yes, Commonwealth can do that. Uh, uphold anti-discrimination human rights legislation. Uh, that will be... Yeah, is it state or federal? Nah, don't know. Royal Commission on COVID-19 response with terms of reference to include all government regulations and directives and to hold them account and to hold account the public bodies, officers and officials who disseminated them or followed them without question. This would also consider the conduct of some in the private sector. Now, if it's a federal royal commission, that really only has scope to deal with federal matters. I, you know, it, it really, it, it'll be doubtful and cause a, a massive um, court fight if a federal royal commission found something that breached state legislation and then hey said hey you've got to prosecute them under state legislation. Uh, so you know as I've said, uh, I think this this one goes to the political naivety of Morgan Jonas. Um, so his, his next tab. So actually, I read the tabs first. So he's got COVID nineteen government taxation and reduction. Direct democracy, human rights, sovereignty, manufacturing industry, trade, education, energy, digital identity, censorship, environment, China, firearms, suppression order, uh, surveillance, social media, family, tradition, veterans, commercial giants and defence. As I said, and there's a number of them that are coming soon. Let's have a look at this. Uh, government taxation says, yes, we're most heavily taxed people in the world. This is a result of ballooning government bureaucracy, intervening and micromanaging every facet of people's lives. Don't disagree with him there. The institution of government was probably designed to serve people by collecting taxes and redistributing them according to the needs of the country and its citizens. Uh, introduction of explicit KPIs for government departments. Introduction of a capped annual federal budget of existing taxpayer revenue with innovative policies designed to reduce or abolish unnecessary taxes. Um, Don't know. Don't know. Political naivety? Yeah. Or is it wishful thinking? Yeah. Probably wishful thinking. Uh, Direct democracy? Well, totally agree with this one. Uh, We don't want direct democracy. Uh, so reading it says the power to implement, amend and remove legislation must ultimately lay in the hands of the people. Representative government has failed the public and compromised our democratic system. Voters are deceived into supporting individuals who often do not represent nor advocate for the interests of the citizen. This monumental betrayal of trust must be rectified in order to return democracy to its rightful owners, the public. This can be achieved via a system of direct democracy. 
citizen-initiated referenda, the ability for the public to instigate impeachment proceedings of elected members of parliament, the ability for public intervention on pending legislation that threatens the natural freedoms of the citizen, uh, the elections of key public positions, including but not limited to governor-general, governors, commissioners, judges, and chief medical-slash-health officers. Now, totally disagree with direct democracy. Uh, I think that voting should be voluntary. Uh, so the, the less people that vote, the better. Uh, and th- there should be some sort of, uh, let's say, uh, entrance requirement uh, to be able to vote. Uh, I mean, look, everything else we do in life, we have to pass some sort of test. Um, you know, you go and drive a car, you have to pass a test. You get a weapons licence, you have to pass a test. You do drive a forklift, you have to pass a test. Um, you know, you, you go to school, you have to learn stuff and pass tests. And yet the biggest threat we've got to our existence is, hey, we'll just give any idiot the ability to tick a box on a bit of paper and there we go. Um, no, you know, in, improve the education so that people are more politically aware and understanding of how things are in this country uh, for that. So which in case you make democracy, uh, you make voting optional because let's remember it's not a right. Um, a, a right is something that we have that is not given to us by the government and we're not forced to exercise by the government. So with them uh, saying that we have to do it, then that's not a right. That is that an obligation or is that a chore? Um, yeah, an obligation? Yeah, I don't think it is. It's just something that, that we're told we have to do. Like, you know, for example, right to free speech. You can keep your mouth shut or you can blurt out whatever you want. So, you know, that's the thing. Whereas the right to vote, hey, if I want to exercise that right, then yes, I can. But if I don't want to, I should also be in that position as well. And this is what's wrong with everyone. Oh, you know, it's your right to vote. Well, yeah. Um, no, I'm being forced to do it. So citizen-initiated referenda, absolutely disagree with. Uh, the ability for the public to instigate impeachment proceedings, uh, totally disagree with because it will be easy for the system to get gamed. Uh, you know, you whatever the, the trigger is, you could easily find that in a number of influential, you know, influence... In, Influential. Anyway, people are easily influenced uh, voters. You could easily go around and say, yep, yeah, this, we need to do this um, and get someone impeached. The ability for public intervention on pending legislation that threatens the natural freedoms of the citizen. Well, no. What we need is uh, with a, a Bill of Rights where these are, these are the rights. You cannot infringe upon those rights and make them non-negotiable rights. Uh, so then there isn't any need for legislation because the Bill of Rights, which, you know, whilst I disagree with having a Bill of Rights, it's if it was there, then the courts can refer back to that and say, hey, no, that, that legislation is invalid because it breaches those rights, blah, blah. Case closed. Um, elections for key public positions, including but not limited to governor, general, governors, commissioners, judges, blah, blah, blah. Um, that one I totally disagree with as well. Because uh, the idea is to make politics boring, to get the uh, the elites out of that, and the even the more that you're going to do it to elected positions, the more that there's going to be corruption that sneaks into it. There's more that they're going to be 
looking for funding from particular sources, so they will spend a shitload of money uh, in the hopes of getting your vote uh, and, and all that sort of stuff. So that's going to cause more problems than it's going to solve. Uh, so especially if we vote, you know, vote for the Governor General, well, no, I, you know, I agree with the Governor General because the Governor General is the Queen's representative, as, as it is anyway. So why vote for the Governor General or the Governor? Um, so there's that commissioners, judges, chief medical, eh, no, disagree with because you're only going to find people that will go into that will be those that uh, have massive um, financial backings, as we've seen with all the, the Climate 200 or Climate 2000, the, the, the teal independence. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it, that's going to cause so much problems. Uh, so I think, again, political naivety or lack of understanding of, of, of the systems that we have. Uh, so next one's human rights. COVID-19 crisis has highlighted the need for human rights protection. The implementation of a Bill of Rights is required in order to safeguard Australia's most fundamental human rights and civil liberties, including but not limited to freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of movement, freedom to earn, freedom against self-incrimination, freedom to gather, freedom of bodily autonomy, freedom of self-defence, freedom of parental rights, freedom of privacy, freedom to associate and freedom of religion. Um, Yeah... Um, don't disagree with it, though I think freedom to self-defence, it, it should be a right because it's your right to, to exercise that um, and it should be not freedom of right to privacy, freedom to associate, yes, freedom of religion, yes, freedom to gather, um, protection against self-incrimination, not freedom against um, freedom to earn, right to earn. So, again, I think this is um, political naivety on his part, uh, having it up. So, you know what? Uh, but also, doesn't hey, oh, then see? Maybe his freedom to self defence is his way of um, bringing in. You know, talking about um, firearms ownership, and he, he's done it that way. But still. You know, why call it the, the right to self-defence? Why don't I just say, hey, you know, to, to take a leaf out of the Yanks, you know, the, the right to keep and bear arms uh, and do it that way? Um, because, yeah, so anyway, we'll leave that one alone. Uh, what's his next one? Sovereignty. Australia has lost its capability to self-govern and to be self-sufficient. The crisis has resulted in centralisation of policy-making with external influences setting the agenda. For decades, successive governments have signed international agreements and treaties to the detriment of our own self-determination and sovereign protection. Furthermore, Australia's defence capabilities have been severely compromised as a result of inaction and lack of forward planning. In order for Australia to begin the journey of restoring independence, the following position, propositions should be considered withdrawal, amendment of trade deals that compromise Australia's interests, expel and prevent hostile international commercial entities operating in Australia, secure energy independence, domestic framework ensuring self-sufficient water and food security, withdrawal from intergovernmental bodies such as World Economic Forum, Paris Climate Accord, Strong Cities Network, World Health Organisation and such organisations that threaten the viability of national autonomy in creating sound domestic policy. Increase defence capabilities in order to be self-protected at all times. Fortify bilateral commercial and military relations with neighbouring countries. 
create policies that safeguard and incentivise Australian businesses uh, to have the capacity to produce and supply in a fair competitive market and to prevent commercial exploitation. Uh, let's see with this one. Uh, withdrawal of an amendment of trade deals? Yeah, compromise? Actually, yes, agree with that one. Uh, expel and prevent hostile internal international commercial entities operating in Australia? Yeah, secure energy and independence? Well, the only way we can do that is by going nuclear. Uh, domestic framework ensuring self-sufficient water and food security. Um, I think to an extent we have that, though the problem is we export far too much. Um, withdrawal from intergovernmental bodies such as World Economic Forum, Parrot Climate Accord, um, Strong Cities. Yeah, don't as I said, don't disagree with that. Um, the though they're not intergovernmental, they're non-government um, bodies. Uh, increasing defence capabilities in order to be self-protected at all times. Totally disagree with that. Uh, we should be winding down spending on the defence force, and um, and and this is going to be something that is the haters are going to latch onto. I think we should be arming the population uh, because it, it's the thing. Do we really okay? Consider it this way: if if the the citizenry were, were armed to a point where, uh, you know, there was a substantial level of private firearm ownership, would we need a defence force? Because who would come after? Who would decide that they're going to invade Australia if they knew that um, out of the the twenty six million pe- um, people that we have as a population, let's say thirteen million of them, or you know, ten million of them were armed, uh, would would an occupying a potential occupying force invade the country? So that's the thing. I don't think that they would because they would need massive numbers to suppress uh, citizens. So who who rise up against the invaders? So I think there's that. Uh, <coughs> oh, pardon me. And the other thing that you have to consider as well is that if we have such a big defence force where all this money goes in that, then that's only creating a uh, reinforcing the military-industrial complex and it also uh, puts our citizens, um, the youth and, and those who, whether it's conscripted or those who volunteer, they will be put in a position to be cannon fodder to the egos of the elites and the the evil class, so I think we need to wind wind back defence spending to zero, um, because really, should we be getting involved in in skirmishes that are not related to Australia? Eh, don't agree with that. Um, don't think we should. Sorry, I do. You know, it's we shouldn't be getting involved in skirmishes that aren't relevant to us. Uh, if someone's knocking on our borders, uh, then hey, yep. Rise up and meet them at the border, uh, but as for stuff that's going on in in other countries, yeah, to an extent, say no. Um, but before you turn and say, "Oh, but there's genocide, there's this and there's that," well, there's freaking genocide in one of our biggest trading partners, uh, who's going to be knocking on our door soon, and yet that you know, no one said take up arms against that country. So, uh, you know, a little bit of hypocrisy from the authoritarian left on that one. So I don't think that we should be increasing defence capabilities at all. Uh, fortify bilateral commercial and military relations with neighbouring countries. 
Um, bilateral commercial, yes. Military relations, no. Um, create policies that safeguard and incentivize Australian businesses. Well, how are you going to do that? Um, that have the capacity to produce and supply in a fair competitive market. Uh, well, you want a fair and competitive market. Well, the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you put uh, either reduce the wages or bring back tariffs on imported goods uh, to protect the domestic market. Now, you can't do that. You can't put tariffs on uh, imported goods because it's likely to be in breach of a free trade agreement. So, yeah, I think this one, again, um, I'll put down to uh, political naivety uh, and a lot of it isn't related to the sovereignty of this country or our peoples. Um, Manufacturing and industry is his next one. Australia was once one of the world's greatest manufacturing nations. We had a thriving car industry, made our own white goods and many other varied products were made from Australia's own rich resources. This is no longer the case. In fact, an analysis of global statistics on economic self-sufficiency places us in the same band as developing nations. To bring manufacturing back home again and to compete internationally, I propose major tax cuts for manufacturers, exporters, producers, refiners and processors drastic reduction in needless regulation, protect our existing water resources and explore the many technologies of for water storage and distribution, offer strong incentives for innovation by creating tax-free zones, explore options for cheap, reliable energy, review and propose amendments to trade deals that disadvantage Australian industry. Now, again, I think this one is political naivety. Um... Don't, so he's talking about major tax cuts. Well, why not just get rid of taxes altogether uh, for manufacturers, exporters, producers, refiners and processors? Drastic reduction in needless regulation. Yep, totally agree with that one. Protect our existing water resources. Well, the first thing you've got to do is tear up the Murray-Darling Basin Agreement, um, get rid of that because all that does is uh, benefit the uh, those who who, who Gamble with water stocks. Let's because that's what they're doing. They're, they're trading water stocks, so they, it's either futures or the existing stocks. So that's um, a, a big thing. You need to tear up the Murray Darling Basin Agreement. Uh, so there's that. Create offer stronger offer strong incentives for innovation by creating tax free zones. Well, how would you do it? Um, are you going to say that okay, there's a tax free zone in from uh, let's say. Uh, in, in Victoria, let's say the bubble of the CBD. Well, then why there? Or how about the bubble of um, Shepparton, for example? The, you know, a bubble at 10K or let's say, you know, 20K radius out. If you're anything in there, then, hey, you get a tax-free zone. But then why? Why? Why make it a tax-free zone? Why not just, um, you know, reduce the taxes to, uh, you know, just a, a, a flat, flat, you know, tax if you have to have it for a start. Um, explore options for cheap and reliable energy. Once again, he hasn't mentioned nuclear. Um, you know, he skirts around it. So I don't know whether he's trying to play the field on that one. Uh, but yeah, so and propose review and propose amendments to trade deals that disadvantage Australian industry. Oh, well, yeah, that's in line with his uh, sovereignty one about trade agreements. So I think with this one, once again, political naivety, uh, yeah, not saying, but okay, so 
with this one, it's a lot more involved than what he's put there. So for a start, you have to get rid of the Lima Agreement uh, and its successes. I think the Lima Agreement was in the 70s or something like that, which is about taking manufacturing to developing nations. Uh, I also think that if you generally want to make Australia competitive, then you have to rip up the Fair Work Act. You have to... Um, to an extent, or actually maybe even altogether, uh, let the market decide what the wages are going to be. Uh, and I'll get into that one when I talk about the tweets from Jane Caro and Sally Mack uh, and all that sort of stuff. So manufacturing industry, uh, I, I think, yeah, probably, you know, agree with it in principle, though I think it's the thing that it's political naivety. Um, actually, here we go. Trade. International trade is crucial as a critical element for maintaining uh, of maintaining a competitive advanced economy. However, since the signing of the United Nations Lima Declaration in 1975, successive Australian governments have systematically outsourced Australian industry to foreign nations via trade agreements that offer little to no benefit to the general public whilst granting disproportionate benefits and protections to multinationals and foreign markets. This process has resulted in in a bottleneck in the Australian economy, whereby large amounts of capital has been <coughs> increment, incre- incrementally transferred to fewer industries, such as minor and education, mining and education. In order to revive Australian industries and grant broader opportunities to emerging industries, I propose the following. Hang on, I just need to have a cough here. Uh, do I blame long COVID on that one? Um, Uh, I'm going to drink of water too. Complete audit. So he's, he proposes the following: complete audit of all current standing trade agreements, renegotiate trade agreements, uh, trade deals that disadvantage slash destroy Australian industries, and provide unfair protections for foreign markets. Adopt an aggressive strategy to open international markets to Australian exporters. Restrict foreign investment that cripples Australian markets and jeopardises national security. Impose new trade rules to eliminate capitalisation of foreign slave labour markets. Refocus on bilateral trade agreements. Remove blanket removal of multilateral trade agreements. Repeal and replacement of the Foreign Investment Review Board. So, why wasn't this bit in the manufacturing and industry? because those two relate together. Um, so you have to manufacture something before you can trade it. So then, you know, they, they should be all, all tied together and he should have led with that in the sovereignty bit as well. Uh, so, yeah, I, once again, I, I'd say political naivety in the way that he's done it. Can't say I disagree with what he's got there though review and repla- repeal and replacement of the foreign investment review board um i if he wants to restrict foreign investment that cripples australian markets well then how's he going to do that without a foreign investment review board uh, i would possibly ratchet up or, or reduce the amount that triggers an FIRB review, 
uh, you know, reduce it instead of being, you know, let's say, you know, $20 million, let's say reduce it down to anything because, you know, reduce it down to any foreign ownership at any level um, and all that sort of stuff now. Oh, but it's going to, you know, restrict foreign investment in the country. Well, do we really need it? I don't think we do. Um, because if you've got enough money in the country where locals can buy, the, you know, invest in the things that they want, uh, then you shouldn't have to re- go to uh, someone offshore or an offshore company, uh, company country, you know, an international country to, to turn around and say, hey, we need you to invest in this so we can improve our manufacturing. Why? I, I disagree with that because it's just, yeah. Um, so, you know, the FIRB, you know, r- reduce the amount, like the, reduce the trigger lever to zero where any foreign investment in this country needs to get reviewed and see whether it's generally in our national interest or it's not. Um, so, yeah, um, I think, yeah, so that one I, I also put down to political naivety um, with the way that he's doing it. Uh, for that education um, I disagree with this whole thing because education is the responsibility of the states it's not the responsibility of the Commonwealth so he shouldn't have anything in here he should just turn around and say uh, abolish the federal education department and restore uh, responsibility of education to the states and pure and simple as that. Instead, he's gone through a whole lot of um, rubbish. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, how much did you chalk up to political naivety? Um, so, yeah. Okay, now he's going to be an interesting one. Uh, okay, here we go. He finally does talk about nuclear. So under his energy one. Despite having some of the world's highest levels of diverse natural resources, the government has intervened and now given us some of the world's most expensive energy prices. These excessive prices have restricted Australian industry from fair competition and the ability to create ongoing employment. Affordable energy generates wealth, limits adverse environmental impacts and provides a healthier standard of living. To achieve this, End the decommissioning of coal-fired power stations, create a plan for nuclear and thorium energy, abolish government grants for non-viable energy production methods, provide tax cut incentives for energy producers who explore clean, viable forms of energy generation. Fuel. Australia used to produce enough fuel to limit importation. Over time, government intervention drastically reduced our ability to ensure sufficient supply at a reasonable cost to the consumer. As local production decreased, the importation of fuel increased to meet consumption demands. As a result of this dynamic, we have left ourselves vulnerable to fluctuating global markets and therefore paying top dollar at all times. In order to protect Australian fuel supplies, the following propositions must be considered. Expedited approval process for exploration, reduce overall fuel-related regulation, recommission close down oil refineries, Utilise known oil reserves, sizable tax exemptions for fuel-related production industries, abolish fuel excise tax. Uh, so going back to the first one, energy. Um, yes. So no, as I've said, totally agree. Push nuclear. Thorium, I'm not sure. I haven't looked into thorium to tell you the truth. 
Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure whether that would be, yeah. Um, abolish government grants, absolutely. Uh, provide tax incentives for energy producers, well, no. Uh, so, you know, maybe pushing, you know, going a little bit down the socialist path. Uh, I think that the uh, government should be the one that is creating the power stations, uh, not private enterprise, and because at least with the government then, you know, if the government turned around and created, not let, see, but then again, the Commonwealth can't create power stations, so energy is a state issue. Uh, so on that part, I'd say political naivety again uh, on on his part. So he should have just turned around and said, hey, we'll rip up the nuclear prohibit, pro- prohibition uh, and bill or whatever it is and let the states go nuclear uh, and just left it that fuel. Um, once again, this is this is a thing of the states. Yes, there's regulation. There is federal regulation, uh, but the majority of it comes from the states. So once again, to be so in-depth about it, I think, once again, political naivety. Um, digital identity. I'm not going to read through that one. I'll, I'll let you have a, have, a, have a read of it yourself. Um, here he talks about the World Economic Forum on the issue of centralising and digitising our identity. Uh, yes. Uh, so, and then he also links to the digitalidentity.gov.au website. Um, and these include centralising your personal financial and biometric data such as your spending habits, illness medications, blah, blah, location tracking, bank balances, da, da, da. Um, digital identity, total agree, get rid of it. Censorship, um, social media, more broadly the internet has have given citizens a freedom of expression and a voice that have been that has been unprecedented. unprecedented. Despite its problems, the f- this freedom is invaluable and must be protected. The COVID-19 crisis exposed rife censorship in Australia and the need for protections that guarantee free and open dialogue. Many who held views contrary to the government, even qualified, medical ex- qualified experts and members of parliament were absent from the mainstream media and excluded from publicly expressing these views. To resolve this impediment to democracy, I propose the following... Other than currently unlawful terms of forms of speech, defamation, threats of harm, stalking, a social media platform which inhibits free speech will be guilty of an offence carrying a significant fine. Separation of state and media with checks in place such as independent oversight body to enshrine free speech in a bill of rights. Um, totally disagree with all of this. Uh, so what, what, I mean... So this is the thing. Now we come back to this. Now this is going to be something that is going to take a while for people to get their head around. So bear with me while I try and explain it. Now social media. Now let's remember that social media. The the companies that own social media are private companies. So and when you sign up, you agree to their terms of service. Okay, so. That means that if you don't abide by their terms of service, then they can boot you, block you, ban you, etc., etc. Now, what needs to happen is instead of uh, having things like that in place, 
let's have a look at removing government spending on platforms such as Facebook or Twitter that do create uh, massive um, you know, shadow banning algorithms, etc., etc. Uh, so to the point where, hey, if you're going to do this, well, we're not going to invest in you. So, for example, uh, when was that? Today came out in the Herald Sun, Daniel Andrews. Okay, Daniel Andrews spent forty, let's say, forty-two thousand dollars on uh, ads on uh, Facebook advertisements in the first three months of the year. So let's say that continues. So he's Daniel Andrews is spending nearly a hundred K on Facebook. So if Daniel Andrews wants something done, you don't think that he's going to that Facebook is going to turn around and say, Hey, yet yeah, we'll help you because we want more money from you. So get rid of government spending. Just turn around and say, Nope, no government spending on social media, no government on that. Um so from that, so but, but this comes back down to the other thing. So my view is um, free market anarchist, whereas just let the market decide things and keep government out of my life as much as they can. So this comes back down to the uh, exercise of private property rights, which is the fundamental um, right that you have in uh, in in this. So private property is obviously your own private property. Or so, or or a contract that you enter into. So let's say, for example, uh, you enter into a contract with uh, a printer to print something out. Then they turn around and say, "No, well, you've entered into that contract, so you'd have to exercise those rights for breach of contract, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Um, you can say whatever you want in your house. If you lease a hall, then you've entered into a contract in that to lease that hall, and as part of that. You know, it would be, hey, you can either say what you want or you can do what you want, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if they turn around and say, oh, no, you can't do that because you're going to promote, um, I don't know, pick a, pick a uh, let, let's say, you're going to talk about vaccine scepticism. Well, no, you can't do that because I've ended in contract with you to use those facilities for any lawful, lawful reason. So, um, you know what, you could... You know, that would be a breach of contract thing, so you'd have to t- go after the person that way. Social media, yeah, I just reckon, you know, let them go. Take away government funding uh, because this is what it is. It, it's government funding. They're, they're running pointless Facebook ads uh, for, for no other reason than to launder money. So we'll go we'll go and give Facebook money for, you know, for $40,000 uh, a month so, because we know that they're going to do things, they're going to look after us because we're giving this money, and they're not going to upset the you know the, the hand that feeds them. Just remove all government funding, pure and simple as that. Uh, and then social media will either wake up and decide that they're not going to play those games, or they'll just end up going the way of MySpace and and everything like that. Um, separation of state and media, yes, with checks in place. Such as an independent oversight body. Well, no, because the independent oversight body needs to be funded by something, which means that there's got to be taxes taken out to fund this independent oversight body because the oversight body, the participants of it, aren't going to be there voluntary. So disagree with that. Um, make it a such a, a 
um, suitable environment where competition can come up uh, for that one. So shrine free speech in a Bill of Rights. Well, you say, okay, so here's, here's the definite political naivety saying enshrine free speech in a Bill of Rights, yet he also turns around and says, as the first point, other than currently unlawful forms of speech, defamation, threats of harm, stalking. So he's either going for free speech or he's going for limited speech because free speech is free speech, which means that some person is going to say things that will upset you and potentially defame you. So, but and this is the thing, so... What's he want here? He's not want. He's not uh, enshrining free speech. He's enshrining limited speech. Uh, so, so this is the thing. And and once again, uh, I I have to chalk. Do I chalk it down this one again to political naivety? Um, I don't know, man. I mean, you know, how how do you define it? Because there's there's a lot there. That okay, so each one has so how many have I gone through so far? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. So, eleven of his, his uh, positions are potentially wrong, let's say, potentially wrong due to political naivety. Um, so yeah. I, I don't think so. I mean, there's only so much that you can excuse for political naivety before you turn around and say, mate, you're out of your depth. What are you even trying to do? Um, so, you know, if you're that far out of your depth with just what you put on so you know, on your own website, then, you know, you're going to be out of your depth with everything else where you are expected to think on your feet or to respond to something. Uh, so, yes, so... Let's see, what, he's got environment, coming soon. China, coming soon. Firearms, coming soon. Suppression order, coming soon. Surveillance, coming soon. Social media, coming soon. Family, coming soon. Tradition, coming soon. Veterans, coming soon. Commercial giants, coming soon. Defence, coming soon. Um, so, yeah, he really hasn't updated that anything. Um. See, but then if you have a look at his his vision, uh, it says, an opportunity-rich, free, independent and strong Australia, a nation whereby personal liberty is central, government power is limited, the rule of law applies equally to everyone and individual potential is limited only by one's imagination. So you compare that to to what he's put down in his positions and they, they contradict each other. Um, government power is limited, yet he's talking about creating oversight bodies for uh, media. So that's, yeah, that's not reducing government power. Government power is limited. Um, so, yeah, you know, and, jeez, oh, I've been going on this one for a while. Um, I, I'm not meaning this as, as a, you know, let's slam Morgan, um, though... That being said, if he's putting himself out there as a potential candidate, and obviously he's gone above the line because he's got Monica involved in it, is that you know he, he needs to have some sort of credibility. He either limited to a couple of things, 
and just leave it at that rather than coming soon, coming soon, coming soon and going into uh, positions where it's just like, mate, you've got no idea what you're talking about. Um, so, yeah, it's, as I said, man, I mean, how much How much do you, oh, my God, I sound like Biden. Oh, yeah, man, come on, man. Um Maybe I've been watching too much American stuff and hearing Biden too much. Anyway, uh, so, you know, this is the thing, as I said, how much do you put down to political naivety and how much of it is, mate, you're out of your depth? Uh, so, oh, well, we'll just have to wait and see on that one. Um, anyway, moving right along. Next thing I wanted to talk about was the new crop, here we go, of young global leaders. Um we're excited to welcome, this is reading off the Young Global Leaders website, where we are excited to welcome 109 young global leaders to the class of 2022, from scientists leading on efforts to address COVID to activists tackling gender-based violence, artists keeping history and culture alive through music and leaders from business, civil society, academia and government meet the new class of YGLs. So if we go to our little bit which is Australasia and Oceania. And we have Sophia Hamblin-Wang, who's the coup of Mineral Carbonation International, MCI, Australia. No idea who they are. Um, or Caroline Blanche Israel, uh, who's the managing director and partner of the Boston Consulting Group. And they... Boston Consulting, that's a name somewhere that's that's infamous, and I, I at the moment I can't quite un, can't quite remember where. But if we go and have a look, something interesting. I was reading through this before, so we have a look at North America. Uh, we've got Jal Abdel Majid. Uh, apologies if I pronounced her name wrong. She's the deputy CFO of BlackRock USA. Now we know how bad BlackRock is. Uh, they're the ones that have um, pushed for um, the board of, of Twitter to reject Musk's takeover bid. Um, there's Usman Ahmed, who's the head of global policy research for PayPal. Um, Colin Alvred, who's a congressman from Texas, Democrat, 32nd District, uh, US House of Representatives in the USA, um, managing director... MLWM, whatever that means, uh, Merrill Lynch. And we've got, hang on, just let me have another coffee. <clears throat> um, someone from Muzo, uh, USA, Algorithmic Justice League. Uh, it goes on and on. And there's, uh, so remember Klaus Schwab was boasting about infiltrating all the, the uh, levels of the Canadian cabinet. Here's another one, Minister of Immigration, uh, Refugees and Citizenship, Citizenship and Immigration Canada. So this is another a Canadian minister, um, Head of Corporate Sustainability in the HSBC Bank in Canada, um, Founder and CEO of BrainCo USA, um, Global Head of Data Science from Blackstone Group USA. Now Blackstone Group is the one that has put in a bid to purchase Crown Casinos. Now, they are just as bad as BlackRock. Um, 
someone from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, the tenure, uh, Earl Slim, okay, um, someone from the Chief of Section on Immunoengineering from the NIH. That's, um, isn't that where Fauci's from, the NIH? Um, Connected Care North America. Uh, okay, so that's Philips USA. Um, the Executive Vice President, Strategy and Chief Sustainability Officer of Tyson Foods USA and someone from Serum USA, which is uh, supporting initiatives to redistribute unused medicines, Serum. Uh, so it, it's freaking scary. Um, Europe, anyone relevant from Europe? Um Okay, 20 YGLs in Europe, um, H2Go Power in the UK, um, Digital Transformation of Slovenia, um, GIB, the Group Sustainability Officer from G- Golf International Bank UK. Uh, someone from Zurich Global Ventures, um, Member of the European Parliament, Ava Maydell, Member of the European Parliament, European Parliament Belgium, uh, Founder and Director of European Centre for Digital Competitiveness in Germany, um, someone from Gripping Films, um, someone from Deutsche Bank, United Kingdom, um, from LG Sonic, Netherlands, so that's Europe. What else have we got? Um, South Asia. Let's see if we've got any big... Member of Parliament from the Upper House of New Delhi, uh, of Delhi, sorry, India. Um, CEO of the Global Himalayan Expedition. Uh, Edelweiss Mutual Fund in India, the Managing Director and CEO. Uh, sporting person, Innovate Coworking India. Sihat, um, someone in Pakistan. Member. Of Strategic Reforms and Implementation Unit, Office of the Prime Minister of Pakistan. So this person is going to be in the ear of the Prime Minister of Pakistan and they're a young global leader. Um, Asian, uh, Australian, or is it Asian, Southeast Asia, whatever it is. Um, Her Majesty's Trade Commissioner for Asia-Pacific, Department of International Trade, Singapore. Um They are, um, but you know this. This is the thing. This organization is just so evil that if you have a look at it, there's just so much. Um, so twelve young global leaders in Greater China. Um, anything interesting there? Um, but yeah, it, it's like, man, um, I, I, I wish people would wake up about how evil the World Economic Forum is and just turn around and say, no, nah, you know what, we've, we've got to boot you people out. Um, any politician that is involved in it 
just go. Um, nine YGLs from Latin America. Uh, no one from government. Um, what else is there? So, yeah, just I, I think that people, oh, there you go, someone from Caribbean country, Dominican Republic, envoy to the of the vice president of the Dominican Republic, the presidency of the Dominican Republic. So here's another one that's got obviously, you know, a, a uh, elite state leaders here. Uh, so, you know, this is, yeah, it, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I got to stop saying that. I think I might have to start a swear jar here. Oh, I don't know, man. You know, put a dollar in a swear jar. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's the thing that. It is going to be bad. So obviously all these people that are young global leaders, they'll be uh, influenced by Klaus's ideas, uh, obviously the Great Reset, uh, the removing of, uh, what is it? Um, so obviously the social credit and then transhumans and everything like that. So, yeah, it's... It's something that is scary and people need to be waking up to it uh, and, and deciding that, no, we're not doing this. But anyway, enough on that one. Um, coming up to the 57-minute mark, I'm going to have to quickly run through this. So uh, last thing today that I'm going to have a bit of a rant about is some tweets by Jane Caro and Sally McManus. Now, Jane Caro is running as a Senate candidate for a Reason Party in Australia. Uh, sorry, in Victoria. Um, of course they're in Australia, you buffhead. Uh, so where did they come on there? Democrats. Reason first. Oh, yeah, we're sorry. Actually, she's not. Was she running for New South Wales? Oh, yeah, she's running for New South Wales. My bad. Because um, I just had a look at here. It says um, authorised by Jane Cara, Reason Australia, 91 Johnson Street, Collingwood. Uh, so I mistakenly believed that it was Victoria. I uh, wondered why I couldn't see her on, on the... Electoral thing, so um, for that, anyway, going back to the tweet, uh, she posted something yesterday on Twitter. Immigrants do not undermine workers' pay and condition. Weakening unions undermine workers' and pay and conditions, Q&A. Oh, so there must have been something on Q&A. Uh, so let's make it clear. I, actually, and this goes in line with what... Uh, Sally McManus here, Ross Gittins. Uh, he's the economic advisor, uh, economics editor for the Sydney Morning Herald and uh, other uh, stable papers. Uh, explains what we all know insecure work is on the rise because it is an effective cost cutting mechanism for employers. Now, combine the two of them, let's say that, that both of them are a load of bullshit. 
Um, so going back to this first one by Jankara, uh, immigrants do not undermine workers' paying conditions. Actually, they do. Because if we have a look at the current situation now where there is uh, such a tight labour market is that I've heard stories of first-year apprentices getting paid $35 an hour. Uh, there was um, someone, I know it's anecdotal, it's not empirical evidence, it's just something that someone said on Twitter um, of a coffee shop offering baristas $35 an hour. Uh, for that, that's because the labour market is so tight that there's, there's uh, not enough staff to fill the jobs. And this is relating to uh, a lack of immigration, whether it's permanent or temporary immigration. So allowing people to come in and work, etc., etc. So for Jane Caro to turn around and say that immigration does not undermine workers' uh, paying conditions just shows you how little she understands about it. Uh, whereas, you know, when the borders open up and everyone comes in from all over the place, which is supposedly going to be starting in May, um, you know, tourists and, and people on working holidays, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, uh, that's going to bring the thirty-five dollars an hour that you know apprentices or baristas are getting now. It's going to drop it back down to uh, for baristas. What are they on? Um, I think it's probably about twenty bucks an hour or, or low twenties. Uh, so you know, that's a substantial drop an hour. Uh, and all that sort of stuff. So that's what immigration does. Now for Sally McManus to also turn around and blame cost-cutting mechanism, uh, sorry, use insecure work, well, let's just call bullshit on that one too because uh, the policies of the state premiers over the last two years have made every job an uh, you know, part of insecure work because it's a man, you know, all they've got to do is just, Sign something, a bit of paper, say, bang, you're not an essential worker anymore. You're deemed to be non-essential, so you have to stay home for the next X amount of time. And we've seen that in Victoria, that, uh, you know, whole industries were decimated because Supreme Leader Andrews decided that, no, they're not essential. Uh, yes, the second lockdown was a little bit different to the first because with the second one, uh, he allowed manufacturing, uh, though, you know, certain parts of manufacturing, uh, that was, you know, a, a bit of a cop out there, um, I'd say because he was under pressure from, uh, you know, probably particular business groups, uh, which also actually this one, I'll, actually I'll get to that one in a minute. But yeah, so it's it's the thing. I mean, you have a look, when you're running a business, um, insecure work now, how Sally McManus defines insecure work, is it a casualised workforce or is it a an, an like a quote-unquote permanent employee, like full-time, part-time, that is too scared to take annual leave? Well, no, that's not an insecure workforce. Um, that's something different. So we'll, we'll stick with an insecure workforce being casualised employee, casualised, yeah, positions. They are so freaking expensive that honestly, if if your business runs majority casuals, then I think that there's a few things that need to be considered when you have a look at your business. Um, maybe 
it, it's not the best use of that because a lot of the times you're just throwing money away. Um, so, yeah, it, it's one of those things that for a business to use majority casuals, it, it's going to be so expensive for it. And then obviously if, if they get overtime or they're working more than their designated shifts, then there's obviously, you know, further increased due to the penalties that they get. Uh, so, yeah, it's just for, for Sally McManus and to turn around and say that, once again, uh, she's just using that as a, um, let's say, a, a very slippery or a sly plug to the Labor Party's you know, is Albanese's plan to to secure jobs and provide secure employment and and all that sort of crap. Um, so yes, it's it's just one of those things that is very deceptive, and uh, it it just she's playing on the ignorance of those who will tweet into um, her. You know, basically those in her own echo chamber, and uh, you know this is the thing. Okay, let, let's be honest about it. That yes, the uh, various premiers and chief ministers have made every job insecure. Though, what's going to happen when the Great Reset comes in? And this is something we we need to be looking at, and we need to be thinking about because if you think things are insecure now, how insecure are they going to be in the future? Where with the social credit system, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it's going to be based on every facet of your life, and any money that you do spend through the um, digital Australian dollar, which technically isn't a dollar, it's a voucher, because then the provider of that voucher can decide where you can and cannot spend that money. So, you know, it, it's it's a thing. It need, you need to think about that. So you think things are bad now. Right? Once the Great Reset comes in, it's going to be absolutely shocking. Uh, and that's something that, that none of them are talking about. And, you know, I haven't seen... Any, let's say, yeah, but no, no politicians, no politicians are, are talking about it because the ones that are talking about it aren't continuing after the next election, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, yeah, it, it, it's a thing. Just anything that you read by an economist, especially ones from uh, legacy media or the, the corrupt corporate press, you really need to be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, so. Now, one thing that I did want to end on, um, actually, I'll have to leave that one for. Um, I wanted to talk about Bayside Council. I might leave that on for tomorrow. Um, have a bit of a rant about that in the podcast, being mindful of the time here. So, uh, thing in today's The Age, yes, uh, was talking about we're left to speculate. Minister asked to explain vaccination decision. So, remember. Marty F, Martin Foley, the Victorian Health Minister, and Stanman Andrews have always said that they're going to be guided by the experts and they're going to trust the science. So this article starts off with, Transport companies have called on Victorian Health Minister Martin Foley to allow unvaccinated drivers to return to work, saying the government's vaccine mandates has decimated the industry. So if you look at that and you, un- you, you know how screwed up transport is in this state, I think that they're lying to us about the vaccination numbers because if we're at, what was it, 97% or 95% or something like that, uh, vaccination numbers, then 
why would we be in a position where um, the industry is decimated? Um, do I have anything on that? Um, okay. So if we have a look at 94.5% of 12 plus eligible, eligible for second dose and see misleading figures, 67.3% of 18 plus eligible Victorians for the third dose. So let's say we consider it, 90, let's say 95% of Victorians who are eligible for a jab have had two. So... You can't tell me that a majority of those unjabbed people work in transport. So, and this is the thing, you know. Um, so, continuing on with that article, only Victoria, WA, and the Northern Territory continued to require truck drivers to be vaccinated. New South Wales never mandated vaccines for truck drivers, and Queensland and South Australia have lifted their requirements. Professor Julie Lesko, leading vaccine expert at the University of Sydney, called on Foley to explain why vaccine mandates for most workers in Victoria were left in place, despite the significant overhaul of the state's COVID-19 restrictions announced on Wednesday. Tell the public why. Then they understand where he's coming from, Lesk said. Um, they've never done that. They've never released any of the information. Um, Premier Daniel Andrews on Thursday said he hopes he can allow the pandemic declaration to expire on July 12, meaning all COVID restrictions, including vaccine mandates, would be removed in Victoria ahead of the November election. That's the key bit, would be removed in Victoria ahead of the November election. So he'll go into the election and people will believe that, oh, we've got our freedoms back, so Dan's good, he's protected us from the woo flu and, and you know, the, there's going to cause the deaths of 80 million, 100 people, 100 million people and, and we've just survived it and all that. So three leading health experts told The Age on Thursday, there had been a place for vaccine mandates, including for teachers, but not the emergency response phase of the pandemic. But uh, but that the emergency response phase of the pandemic had passed and the requirement should now apply only to those working with vulnerable people in hospitals and nursing homes. Um, yeah. It, I don't know. Is he going to let it go in, in July 12? Um, are we going to see a massive... Is he going to turn around and say, hey, yeah, it's endemic now? So we don't need it, um, but or is he going to do it? Oh, there's another variant. I need to declare it again. Uh, if he continues it in July, that means it's going to go into October, which is their caretaker period, which is going to be interesting. Uh, so you know, none of this has been based on science. It's all been based on their decisions. Now, going back to this, is okay. Transport companies. So this is the thing. It's a bit late for these transport companies. So. Um, National Road Transport Association Chief Executive Warren Clark said members needed to comply with regulations but said a consistent set of vaccination rules across the country would benefit the industry. So um, here we go. Victorian Transport Association Chief Executive Peter Anderson said removing the mandates would get drivers who need three doses of vaccine to transport food or two for general freight back to work. We estimate around 10% of drivers left the in-transport industry because of vac vaccination mandates, which is significant for an industry already facing driver shortages, VTA Chief Executive Peter Anderson said. So, but so this is the thing. Now, remember, all these groups, 
when as soon as the mandates came in and as soon as everything started happening, these industry associations could have turned around and said, no, we're not going to comply and just turned around to every member and just said, close for a day. Or that's all it would have taken. You know, Victorian Transport Association and National Road, all these industry groups which are really, yeah, biting my tongue on that one. I'll have a rant about that one later. Um, these industry groups are there just to to continue feathering their own nest, same as unions. They're just uh, a, creating problems so then people will keep joining them and keep renewing because, oh, we need, you need, you know, you have us because we're the only ones that can do this for you. Whereas, you know, if they had have turned around the very first day and turned around and put a directive out to all members and saying, no, stop for the day, just one, actually it might have not even taken a day, it would have taken half, maybe even just a couple of hours before Andrew's turned around and said, nope, we're not going to do it. Uh, so let's say transport, 10% of tra- drivers left the industry. Think about that. So if they had have just turned around and said, nope, no trucks are moving all day, the very first day and said, no, we're not going to move because we don't agree with it. We don't believe the science. You haven't released any information and we don't think it's necessary. Just stop for a day and by, you know, whether you start at midnight or 6 o'clock in the morning or whatever it is, just stop and I would be willing to guarantee you if you started at, at 6, the, the stoppage at 6 o'clock in the morning, by 10 o'clock, things would have changed. Now, same as, as um, National Retail Association and all that sort of stuff, turning around saying, oh, but our members are getting assaulted because they have to ask for, for proof of vaccination. This is way back when the vaccinated economy was there and you couldn't go shopping to Kmart but you could go shopping to Woolies and all that sort of stuff. So this is the thing. If they had to turn around then and said, no, we're not going to do it. Our reasonable measures are going to be a sign. We're not going to put someone there checking it. We'll just put a sign up on the on the wall that says you must be vaccinated to enter this store. Then put it back on to the consumer. And if they had have done that, Andrews would have turned around and said, nope, we'll get rid of it. But these gutless organisations that are just more interested in, crea- in lining their own pockets and creating problems that their members need them to solve, it, it, it's just the thing. And, and this is it. If you have a business in Victoria, Australia or, or anywhere like that and you're a member of one of these industry associations, I would be seriously sitting down and asking yourself why you're doing it. Um, they, yeah, it, they're, they're not worth the money that you spend on it. Um, doesn't matter whether it's the, um, who is it? Chamber of Commerce in Victoria. Um, uh, whoever the, Commerce Victoria or whoever they are now. Um, you know, they're, they're useless. They don't provide anything. They're just a, 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 a bullshit, what is it, money laundering thing where you just fork over money and then they give it to someone else. Um, so they're, they're not worth being members of, uh, as we've seen by this. They've, they've done nothing to support members in the um, jabs or anything like that. So it's, yeah, just I think turn around and, and said, no, if they had just some, same as the unions, like 
you know, the unions are gutless as well because they're supposed to be there to protect all members, not just the ones who decide to to, to to participate in this therapeutic trial. And yet they didn't. They capitulated and said, nope, we're not going to do anything. If they had to turn around and said, nope, you know, the way that it was, one in, all in, you know, you go after one, you go after us all. If they had to turn around and said, no, nope, we're going to down tools until you remove this bullshit health and safety requirement or whatever it is for that, and they could have brought, you know, same as the, the, the various industries, say it's going to be a day stop work for health and safety reasons because you're making us take an untested therapeutic and we don't know what the health and safety implications are on that. If they had just turned around and said, no, we're going to stop for a day, which you can because if, you're, um, if your work safe, workplace is unsafe, then you can stop. You don't need to go through protected industrial action and all that sort of shit because it is uh, a safety thing and you're not going to do something that puts you at your own safety risk. So just turn around and say, no, on this day, whenever the mandate came in, the, you know, the the cutoff date, just turn around and say, no, every every um, every member down tools, they would have gone in, uh, you know, would have been gone before morning tea, except these unions want this stuff to come in. They want it to come in. They want these mandates. They want that. They want the the members to be compliant. They want people disenfranchised. They want people divided because this is what creates them, uh, you know, it, it's the same thing with the industry associations. They, they turn around and say, oh, but you need us because we're the only ones that can do this. We're the only ones that can stand up to government. We're the only ones that, you know, can petition, petition government. We're the only ones that can stand up to your employer. All that sort of stuff. And, yeah, it's it, it's very misleading. Uh, whereas if the workers actually thought for themselves and actually were treated like adults instead of infantilised by the unions, then they would realise that they can manage their own problems themselves and they don't need a third-party person or organisation to organise them and to turn around and say, hey, yes, we'll do it. Um, we'll look after you and, and all that, which they won't, um, as we've seen over the last two years uh, and the number of uh, unsuccessful unfair dismissal applications. Now, I do remember that I have said I'm going to be talking about them. Uh, there was a couple more articles. There was an article in one of the papers the other day uh, listed a couple of cases uh, before the commission, so I'm, I'm going to sit through and read them and have a discussion on them as well. So anyway, uh, look at the time now, uh, nearly a minute 20, a minute 20, an hour 20. Uh, might end it here. Um, thank you everyone for listening this far. Um, now, something I haven't done before, I'm going to ask you to, to please, you know, uh, wherever you listen to your podcast, give us a thumbs up. Um, the minimum accepted uh, ranking rating on this one is obviously five stars because I think I'm I'm worth it um, and all that sort of stuff. So please leave a comment on that. You leaving a comment on that helps other people find this podcast and previous podcast episodes that I've done. I'd also like you to share it out. Now, one final note: uh, I'm doing another interview with uh, Damien Richardson and John McBride. That is being recorded Wednesday night and hopefully to go up on Thursday afternoon. Uh, if I can get it all done Thursday night, I might up, sorry, Wednesday night, I might upload it Wednesday night. Uh, I'm just 
yeah, not going to push myself for that, but it's going to be up on Thursday or Friday uh, of next week. So if there's any uh, questions or anything like that that you'd like me to ask uh, Damien and John when I'm sitting down having the chat with them uh, next week, uh, send the emails to contact at the fifth estate. So contact at the T H E F I F T H dot estate uh, with just you know um, questions for Damien in the subject line, uh, and, and from there I might even try and include a link to a form or something like that, um, or an email address that you can send your questions to, uh, and I'll I'll do my best to get them asked by Damien and. Answered by Damien and John. Um, same as any other members. I'm going to reach out, as I said, to all the other candidates in this Scullin electorate because that's the electorate that I live in and it is of interest to me um, and obviously the other people who live in Scullin. We'll see, we'll see how we go with that. Um, so, yeah. So, anyway, thanks for listening. As I said, please uh, leave a review on whatever platform that you listen to your podcasts on. Uh, it does help me, let me know whether I'm waffling too much, what sort of stuff you'd like to hear and all that. So um, head over there. As I said, five stars is the minimum um, uh, rank rating that I would appreciate. So, yes, if you can do that, we're forever grateful. Um, and on that note, thanks for listening and I will catch you the next one. Bye for now.